Hello and welcome to Indefensible Inc., the podcast where we take a closer look at some allegedly terrible comics and comics-related media. By analyzing what makes bad comics so bad, we hope to better understand what makes good comics so good. Broadcasting from an underground bunker in Wisconsin, I'm your host, Justin Zyduck. To mark the debut of a new era for the show, a chapter one, if you will, we'll discuss John Byrne's Spider-Man chapter one. This series came out in 12 regular issues, plus a bonus issue zero from 1998 to 1999. Uh, Chapter 1 was a soft reboot of Spider-Man's origin, a reboot so soft that it was ignored almost immediately after it was completed. If you hung out on comic book message boards like I did in the the late 90s and early 2000s, you would often hear this series referred to as Spider-Man Crafter 1. I ask you to keep in mind, we just barely discovered the internet in those days, so this was pretty much the uh, cutting edge of online wit, the way that the uh, scrolling marquee HTML tag and the dancing baby gif were the cutting edge of web page design. The new format of the show means we'll be spending less time on summary than before, um, but I don't think this would have made for an interesting scene-by-scene analysis like my former co-host Ryan and I used to do anyway, because this comic, um, which I agree with the consensus is a certified bad comic, um, is bad in sort of a unique way in that it's often exactly the same as a very good comic, one of the greatest ever, uh, the first year or so of Stanley and Steve Ditko's run of Amazing Spider-Man. So let me history this up a bit for you. Think about how many times you've seen Spider-Man's origin done and redone in adaptations over the last 20 years, between movies and TV shows and uh, Broadway musicals. Uh, in fact, you know the story so well that they didn't even bother to redo it for the Tom Holland movies. They're just like, yeah, you know, you, you know how this goes, just... Plug in whatever you like best. But back in 1998, we didn't have Spider-Man movies, no matter how many times we were promised that James Cameron was working on one. Uh, there was a Fox Kids Saturday morning cartoon, or animated series, uh, which was the style at the time. But due to some pretty severe content restrictions about depictions of death, they were apparently never really able to uh, go into <laughs> explicitly Uncle Ben being murdered. So Marvel Comics thought it would be worth their time to formally retell the Spider-Man origin for a new generation. So this comic was commissioned at a time when Spider-Man sales were kind of depressed. This is just a couple of years after the uh, Clone Saga bubble burst. Really, sales of everything were down from the crazy heights of the early 90s, but uh, there was a sense that Spider-Man in particular was kind of in the doldrums. Uh, Wizard Magazine, which uh, had a lot of clout in those days, you have to remember, Uh, kept harping on it, and at one point they actually devoted a cover story to here's what's wrong with Spider-Man, or what we think is wrong with Spider-Man, and here's what Marvel should do to recapture the character's, uh, you know, former glory. Uh, So Marvel decided that for 1999, they were going to do something about it. They reduced the number of in-continuity Spider-Man titles from four to two. They added an out-of-continuity Untold Tales, Legends of the Dark Knight type of uh, anthology title called Web Spinners. And they announced that this would be a new beginning by tapping John Byrne to not only pencil Amazing Spider-Man, but also write, draw, and ink a streamlined and refined origin for Spider-Man. In an essay page at the end of the first issue, Byrne himself weighs in on how he got the gig. I quote, I've developed a reputation as Mr. Fixit, the guy who could be called on to take characters and titles that had, perhaps, lost their bearing a bit or more than a bit, and put them back on course. We can debate forever, no doubt, whether that reputation is truly deserved, but the bottom line is that I am the one Marvel turned to almost 20 years ago to put the Fantastic Four back into the right orbit. I am the one the other guys asked to relaunch their number one guy, 
Um, here obliquely referring to DC Comics, asking him to do what we'd now call a hard reboot with his Man of Steel series. And here, I am the guy Marvel has come to once more to help put Spider-Man back on trajectory. I suspect the reason I get asked to do these things is, ironically, because of the great respect that I have for the history and continuity of the characters. End quote. So if you're familiar with John Byrne and his uh, online persona in particular... This kind of ego, but I'm humble about it, is totally his deal. He's like, you know, they, they just keep asking me to revamp your favorite characters, and I love them so much that I do such a good job. And, you know, it's a bit like if you ask Steven Spielberg about how he got involved with his latest project, and he's like, well, the producers pointed out that I've made some of the highest grossing movies ever made, and I have, like, three Oscars, so people seem to think I'm a pretty good director. <laughs> um, but, you know, on the one hand, you can see where this makes sense. John Byrne was one of the most popular, or, you know, maybe the most popular comic book creator of the 1980s. As he points out, he did a run of Fantastic Four that's usually held up as second only to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's. Um, His revamp of Superman was still the official version in terms of, you know, being canonized and referred back to as of the late 90s. Um, He created Alpha Flight, he redefined She-Hulk, and, you know, oh yeah, he and Claremont did... Uh, Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past and all those other stories on Uncanny X-Men. On the other hand, it wasn't the 80s anymore. Um, the hot artists of the 90s had been the image guys, and that style was um, still sort of the, you know, the the trend. Uh, meanwhile, Byrne was coming off a run on Wonder Woman at DC that people were pretty eh, about. The aforementioned Wizard magazine wrote a pretty scathing review, I remember, that was like, why doesn't he draw backgrounds anymore? So looking back... Burns seems like kind of a conservative choice to usher in a bold new era. Um, conservative, you can take that however you want. <laughs> Would Byrne be able to hook the mythical new readers comics publishers are always looking for? Would he streamline the Spider-Man mythos for longtime readers and remind us of why we love Spider-Man in the first place? Uh, obviously not, or I wouldn't be doing an episode about this. But um, let's dig in. So again, being somebody who hung out on comics message boards at the time, um, I remember fans being pretty nervous about this when this was going to drop. Marvel had a lot stricter sense of continuity back then internally. Um, They didn't tend to do a whole lot of reboots wholesale like uh, DC did. The idea was sort of the editorial policy was that every story counts. And as a writer, you have to play fair with your retcons and try not to outright just say this never happened. And his Man of Steel reboot of Superman had said you know, like 47 years worth of Superman comics uh, never happened. So what was Byrne going to do? It wasn't as drastic as Man of Steel. Uh, In fact, Byrne had such a reverence for the Lee Dicko originals, as he alludes to, that he kept pretty close to the basic plots. Um, These are really adaptations, uh, cover versions, almost. And that ends up being kind of a problem if you've read the originals, um, which, to be fair, wasn't as easy to do back then as it was um, today when... Everything's in trade in three formats, plus digital. But because these are so close to the originals, you can't really critique the stories in the same way because he's mostly just following whatever Steve and Stan did. So inevitably, you almost kind of have to hyper-focus on the details of what Byrne is changing. So the storytelling's a little more modernized. Um, It's structured with embedded flashbacks to get the action part of the story quicker. Uh, whereas the originals are very much, you know, start out at point A and get to point B in the most linear fashion um, you can. The panels are bigger and more varied in shape, 
You got your uh, fancy early computer color separations. Um, and he redesigned some of the villains' costumes, and that's that's really kind of a mixed bag. Um, the Vulture's costume is revamped into kind of a uh, like a suit and tails with a tie, um, kind of like the Joker's suit, but in green instead of purple. And I I kind of like um, that effect. It still has the the you know the fuzzy ruffle around the neck, which is important to me. Uh, Doctor Octopus gets what I think would be best described as robot pants. He has these metallic leg and arm braces and fancy goggles instead of glasses, so that's, you know, Dr. Octopus has had a lot of looks over the years. Um, that's an, uh, one interpretation. Um, but he redesigns Electro, and this, for me, uh, unforgivable. <laughs> uh, I love Ditko's design for Electro, you know, with the, the green and the yellow and the, the you know, the starfish mask, right? Um, but Burns' version uh, gets rid of the starfish mask, and it's just sort of like blue and white. And he looks kind of like one of the less creative Legion of Superhero members. So anyway, um, the editorial position of Indefensible Inc. is no starfish mask, no sale. Um, on the other hand, plenty of changes to these stories are just uh, situational, topical references and updates. And for the most part, just sensible modernizations like you would sort of naturally make. Um, so like Spider-Man rescues a space shuttle. Instead of the Apollo-era uh, rocket and capsule that he does in Amazing Spider-Man number one. One change that got a hilarious amount of flack at the time, I thought, was that instead of Uncle Ben and Aunt May giving Peter the gift of a microscope, like they do in um, Amazing Fantasy 15, they buy him a computer. And I remember people getting angry about this, which seems <laughs> which seems like a pretty you know low-stakes and sensible change to me. But that's how uh, tense we all were about the sanctity of Marvel continuity at this time. Um, anyway, the kids at Peter's high school dress and talk like modern kids do. Or, you know, what a man in his late 40s at the time imagined modern kids in the late 90s talked like. Um, you know, they say they say dude and, you know, man and stuff. <laughs> One example is that instead of the other kids not inviting Peter to a dance, like they do in Amazing Fantasy 15, they don't give Peter an extra ticket to a Rolling Stones concert, which, like, <laughs> you know, those 90s teens always listening to the Rolling Stones. Uh, but even if you ex assume this is, like, a few years in the past, because, you know, this Marvel time is, you know, 10 years or so back, um, weren't Rolling Stones tickets in the 80s notoriously expensive, like steel wheels and stuff? Like, these kids got extras? How do they... <laughs> anyway... Then you have the bigger changes, the stuff that fans were actually dreading. The big one is that he ties Spider-Man and Doc Ock's origins together. Instead of going to whatever that experiment that Peter sees is supposed to be an Amazing Fantasy 15 with the two big spheres just sort of shooting radioactive beams between each other. Um, anyway, instead of going to whatever that is, he visits a demonstration of Otto Octavius working with radioactive materials using his... Uh, tentacles. And instead of Peter getting bit by a radioactive spider and sort of quietly excusing himself, the spider ends up throwing Octavius's experiment like out of whack, it messes up the levels or something, which starts up a chain reaction that causes an explosion and puts Octavius and Peter in the hospital. So let's talk about this first. Um, honestly, I don't really mind it. Um, it's sort of thematically nice for one accident to create a good guy and a bad guy. Um, it's the sort of thing you do in a movie for expediency, 
But that's not why Byrne did it. He did it because, um, by reports, he was sort of hung up about how many atomic accidents there were in the Silver Age. And he's like, if we could just get, you know, a two-for-one deal on this one, it would sort of uh, make it the whole thing a little more plausible. Similarly, a lot of the changes just seem to be things that Byrne wanted to fix because he had to be in his bonnet about them. Um, he takes the time to explain why a burglar who ripped off a TV studio, presumably in downtown Manhattan, I would later hit some random house in Forest Hills. This sounds like, you know, an acceptable change on the face of it, but in the moment, and maybe this is a execution thing, um, it really ends up sort of deflating the, the you know, the, the impact of the moment, where instead of Spider-Man looking at the guy and going, oh my God, that's the same guy, it's the burglar going, yeah, I'm the same guy as from before, and then I hit this house, and now I'm here, and, you know, it's... <laughs> It really, like, it takes away from, like, the, the real impact. And, like, when you're reading Amazing Fantasy 15 in the moment, you don't care, right? But it goes further. In the original Amazing Spider-Man number two, there's a vulture story and a totally separate second story with the Tinkerer working for some aliens. Um, Byrne combines the two, which I guess is, you know, okay. And he incorporates the later retcon that those aliens were just actors disguised as aliens. Um, a story that nobody has referred to in years, so there's really only clouds the issue. The chameleon has a device in Amazing Number 1 that can communicate to Spider-Man via, you know, spider-sense impulses. Uh, Doctor Doom has a similar device that he uses to contact Spider-Man in Amazing Number 5. So Byrne says, I got this, you guys. The chameleon was working for Doom in Amazing Number 1, which first of all resolves him being a, supposedly a Soviet spy, and also explains why they have the same kind of weird spider radio. And we tie in that Dr. Doom is responsible for the space rocket slash a shuttle malfunction. So again, um, that does tie everything together nicely, I suppose. Uh, maybe not something you are hungry to see. The most notorious example, and the one that always gets picked on, but it makes the point so well, is there's a scene where Norman Osborn reveals that he and the Sandman are related via a great-grandmother. Uh, Why? Why? Because of the hair. Steve Ditko drew Sandman with this sort of like tight, wavy hair. And later he designed Norman Osborn with this similar hairstyle. Byrne like capitalizes this and forms this sort of pointless connection. And it seems like it's just to show off. It's not making sense of something that you had a question about. It's just, look what I thought to do. So then at that point it occurs to me that chapter one is... You know, whether, I mean, he may be a fully intention for this to be a new reader-friendly book, but, you know, something in his heart of hearts has produced is not for new readers at all, because new readers are not going to care about two characters having the same hair, or that there was a different vulture and a different tinkerer story. Um, this is for freaks like me, Right. Tying up all these loose continuity ends and, you know, doing little magic tricks and going, oh, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have thought of that. But on the other hand, people like me and people who know the originals are just going to nitpick this. You make any kind of change and we're going to, you know, going to seize on it, even if it's just swapping out a microscope for a computer. It's just different enough between chapter one and the originals to set people off. This sounds weird, but... I think a close <laughs> a close comparison is the Watchmen movie, which is, you know, you watch the that movie, um, as I did one time, and it's very faithful to the letter of the thing. You know, nobody can say that 
uh, you don't respect the source material. But the things that are different just highlights what doesn't work or what you think the adaptation misses the boat on. So I suppose we should talk about the art. Um, Byrne is my favorite comics artist of all time. I've said that before. Um, this isn't like a fashionable opinion. Um, and given that you don't have to dig very far to find something that he said that's offensive or regressive, it may be kind of like an antisocial opinion these days. Uh, but, you know, despite all that, like, I do love his artwork, the smooth lines, the um, sort of a unique mix of cartoonishness and really, like, nitty-gritty detail. Um, the way that he drew Marvel characters in the 70s and the 80s is still how, how I think of a lot of those characters. Obviously, um, Kirby is, you know, you can say that Kirby is more inventive, uh, Neil Adams is a better draftman, etc., etc. But add it all up, and, like, at his peak, Byrne is my personal favorite. Unfortunately, Chapter 1 is not Byrne at his peak. In the 90s, he gets, you know, I want to say scratchy in the inks. Um, they look a lot rougher and a lot looser. And I don't necessarily know if this is something to do with his style changing. It might just be with um, the ch uh, the new coloring techniques and the paper quality. But um, it does show what a conservative choice of this was. You're trying to get kids interested in Spider-Man. And to do so, you're getting the hottest artist from 15 years ago. So all of this is to say that new readers did not respond to Spider-Man Chapter 1. It sold okay, well enough that Marvel apparently offered Byrne a sequel that he passed on. But nobody bought this who wasn't already buying Spider-Man, or who wouldn't already theoretically be buying Spider-Man. But in just the next couple of years, we would actually see two versions of Spider-Man's origins that did resonate with new readers and bring people in. Or at least new viewers. So I think it's useful to compare Spider-Man Chapter 1 to the comic book Ultimate Spider-Man, and to Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie to see where the latter two connected and the first one didn't. Ultimate Spider-Man, penciled by established Spidey artist Mark Bagley and uh, then up-and-coming indie comics writer Brian Michael Bendis, was a full-on reboot. This was designed to be entirely separate from existing Marvel Universe continuity as, like, an alternative version. And instead of redoing Amazing Fantasy 15 bit by bit and scene by scene, the arc of Ultimate Spider-Man spends the first seven issues hitting all the major plot points uh, you expect from a Spider-Man origin, but in its own way. Now, there were people who definitely, uh, on the internet, grumbled about this the way they did about Chapter 1. You know, comics these days, it takes these guys seven issues to tell a story that Stan and Steve did in 11 pages back in 1962. And I admit, I grumbled about it as well. Um, I don't really like Ultimate Spider-Man personally. I got the first couple of issues when they came out, and I uh, dropped it after a few. Um, and it, it, that's just a personal style and preference thing. I don't really enjoy Bendis' decompressed, uh, talking heads-heavy takes on superhero comics. Um, lots of people do, so I'm clearly the person in the wrong here. Um, but even I have to admit that, like, undeniably, Bendis used that extra space to really get into the characters. In Amazing Fantasy number 15, uh, and by extension, chapter 1, you get a bunch of quick-hit scenes of Peter in high school. The other kids don't invite him to things, 
He asks a girl out and gets shot down. Uh, the athletic-looking kid tells him to get lost, and he invites the other kids to a science demonstration, and they laugh at him. So this all adds up in your brain. Like, oh, this kid is not popular. We got all the sort of, like, shorthand signifiers for that. Um, but because Ultimate Spider-Man has so much more space, it's able to expand these little uh, vignettes and present them a little more naturalistically. Um, <laughs> you can insert your own joke here about Bendis' dialogue style being naturalistic or not, um, but he supposedly actually would go down to, like, mall food courts and listen to actual teenagers' conversations and get us feel for what they actually sound like, um, which was apparently less about picking up slang and more about, you know, sort of the rhythms and the way that kids interact. So it's not just adding, you know, dude and lame to uh, conversations the way that Byrne did. Not that I'm saying that John Byrne should have gone to mall food courts and listened to teenagers' conversations. <laughs> um, anyway, for all I know, it's super dated now because um, they haven't revisited it, but in 2000, it was a lot closer to the mark than Stan Lee's 1962 dialogue, obviously. But the biggest difference, I think, is that Peter's Aunt May and Uncle Ben become fully realized characters in the Bendis version. If you look back at Amazing Fantasy 15 and actually uh, count it out, uh, Uncle Ben only occupies five panels in Amazing 15. Um, the most important figure in the Spider-Man backstory and your entire experience with him on panel while he's alive is five panels. And that's not a knock on Amazing Fantasy 15. Obviously, I'm just pointing out the speed at which this story occurs. And those panels are crafted with maximum efficiency. He wakes Peter up by twistling his hair and jokes about barely being able to out-wrestle him. And later he and Aunt May buy Peter an expensive microscope. A microscope, not a computer. <laughs> and you have... Enough information to extrapolate from that. Oh, this is a nice old couple that really care for Peter and want the best for him. But you do sort of have to extrapolate it from a couple of lines of dialogue and some smiling faces. Whereas in Ultimate Spider-Man, because he has much more than a couple of pages, uh, Ben just takes the time for us to get to know Ben and May as people before Ben gets shot. You see them interact with Peter beyond making him breakfast and buying him things. I mean, he has real conversations and real emotions and uh, times when they don't get along, just like real families do. So you do get the time to form a sympathetic bond with them just beyond, you know, nice old couple. And so when Ben gets shot, it's not just poor Peter or, you know, on your fundamental level of human empathy, it, you think that it's sad for an old man to get murdered. Um, you actually miss him as a character, as a person. And everything that I've said for Ultimate Spider-Man also generally applies to Sam Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. Raimi makes you watch that humiliating bus ride at the beginning of the movie with people tripping Peter play out in real time. Um, they don't rush the build to Peter becoming Spider-Man, so you have the time to really establish specific emotional beats with Uncle Ben and Aunt May. So again, you care when Uncle Ben gets shot, other than just that it makes Peter sad. Um, and you can care for Aunt May as a character beyond just being an extension of Peter's world. It's played a little more broadly, and perhaps even uh, less naturalistically than Ultimate Spider-Man, because Sam Raimi is a broad and not particularly naturalistic filmmaker. But you do still get an emotional connection, even if it's a little more melodramatic. So for the purposes of asking why was Chapter 1 so poorly received, people tend to focus on the little details in the changes. And the microscopes and computers. <laughs> it's tempting to blame everything on Dr. Octopus's robot pants, and those, you know, no-good teenagers and their Rolling Stone devil music. 
but having two basically contemporary Spider-Man origins to compare it to is really helpful for criticism. And yeah, you can put it down to a lot of factors. You know, uh, new readers were never going to find Spider-Man Chapter 1 with newsstand distribution being essentially toast. Um, there's, you know, factors of artists and marketing, and obviously more people are going to go see a Hollywood movie than read a comic book. But by comparing these stories, just as stories, and how fondly they're remembered today... I think there's a pretty clear difference. If you're taking Amazing Fantasy number 15 as source material and saying, how do I expand on this 11-page story and make it more relevant and engaging to a present-day audience um, in this Y2K uh, information superhighway age, (laughs) uh, maybe Byrne was too close to it because he already cares about these characters. Whatever else you want to say about John Byrne as a writer or artist or a human being, he, he, you know, he clearly cares about Spider-Man. That's that's not in question at all. So he looks at the early Spider-Man comics and goes like, Spider-Man, awesome! All you need to do is tighten up the plot in a couple of places and make some connections that Stan and Steve didn't plan ahead for. Um, I'm sure if they'd worked this out ahead of time, they would have made Sandman and Norman Osborn related by blood. Uh, whereas Bendis and Raimi and his various screenwriters maybe had a little more perspective where they figure this deep connection to Peter Parker is not a given, and so they develop the relationships to heighten the drama. For me, though, I have to say, I have to give it up for the lead Ditko originals for having one thing that none of these versions of Spider-Man dared to have, Electro and his starfish mask. So that's all the time we have for today's Indefensible Inc. Um, that's not actually true. This is a podcast. I can go on as long as I want. It's just something to say to indicate that you're wrapping up. Um, but I have run out of things to say that I think might be interesting or insightful about John Byrne's Spider-Man Chapter 1. Um, I may be flattering myself. It's entirely possible that nothing I've said today was interesting or insightful, for which I apologize. But if you did enjoy listening to this episode, I hope you'll continue to check in with the newly reformatted Indefensible Inc. going forward. This was my first episode going uh, completely solo, and I hope it came off okay. The feedback tube is indefensibleinc at gmail.com, as well as at indefensibleinc on Twitter and Instagram. As always, feel free to send in suggestions to cover, but also any other questions or topics about bad comics, or comics in general you'd like to hear me rattle on about. Indefensible Inc. has always been a pretty uh, close-to-the-vest operation, and now it's even more so. Every podcast has the host begging you to rate and review the podcast, and I'm no different. But I'll also explicitly add that if you did like the show, or you like the potential of the show or whatever... Uh, recommend it online or in meat space to your human friends. It would probably be best if they also like comics or they'll not likely to get very much out of this. <laughs> but as for you out there in Radio Land, I hope you'll join me back here next time. I'm Justin Zydek, your host, writer, producer, music dude, and co-creator of Indefensible Ink. Thanks for listening, and have a good night. Mm-hmm.